0: Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Business of Design, episode 104, and we're talking about a five-year plan to grow your interior design practice. Doesn't that sound nice and neat? Now, we've all heard the advice to dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Well, interior design professional Stephanie Poorer has similar advice when it comes to building your business from scratch. Start out with a vision of the business you want to create on day one. I didn't do that. Nah. Instead... I set out to work hard and learn from my mistakes and grow my business one client at a time. Oh wow, so unnecessary. There's actually no merit in going the hardest possible route. So wherever you are in your journey, it's not too late to create a five-year plan. In fact, I do one about every three years. In this episode, Stephanie is going to generously share her not-set-in-stone-and-always-evolving five-year plan to success. Don't worry if you're driving the car or walking the dog or taking a bath. You will find an outline of her plan at businessofdesign.com and you're welcome to modify it in any way that makes sense for you. And I mean this in all sincerity. It doesn't matter if you're 25 years old and it's your first year in business or if you're 72 and you've been doing this for 30 years. The time to take action and get serious and take what's yours is today. We can do this, right? A woman who gets a lot of stuff done at Business of Design is Cheryl Moore. Let's see what she's up to.
0: Hi everyone. Thanks for listening. As you know, Kimberly's in Australia. We've got the events coming up this weekend, so that's exciting. She's meeting so many of our members in person, but while she's away, we are moving forward. So coming up with Business of Design, we've got High Point on April 5th. We are doing Launch Projects Like a Boss. It's a three CEU seminar. If you can uh, head over to businessofdesign.com and get signed up and we'd love to see you in High Point. The cost of that is $295 and registration is open on the website businessofdesign.com. We've also opened up registration for our Elite Retreat, which is happening in Santa Monica in October, and that's the 24th to 27th. Details are on the uh, site for that as well. And register before April 15th, and only a 50% deposit is required uh, to hold your spot for that. So if you've got any questions on any of the events, head to businessofdesign.com, or shoot me an email at Cheryl at businessofdesign.com, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Now back to the show.
2: Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Seldon. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, participate in monthly coaching calls, and find unlimited support within our exclusive members-only Facebook group. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $79. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too.
1: Stephanie, let me tell you all about her. First of all, she's got a residential firm in Charlotte, North Carolina, called About a House. Her firm combines the classical elements of proportion, balance, color, and texture with fresh, forward thinking. About a House captures the essence of its clients, creating beautiful spaces they love to call home. Stephanie believes that homes, in all their imperfect perfection, should reflect the lives and stories of the occupants. She has a formal design education and a business background, so she's well prepared to do this job. When she's not designing, she says she can be found in her garden with her sweet children and eight mischievous chickens. <laughs> See, my children were mischievous and I didn't have any chickens, but uh, it certainly sounds idyllic. And of course, North Carolina, very special to me. My daughter's name is Raleigh. Time to meet Stephanie.
3: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, I was dying because Stephanie sent us some topic ideas for the podcast and one of them just blew my mind. I was so excited to get more time with you and deep dive into it, and it has to do with creating a five-year plan for your business.
3: It's exciting to think about where I'm going to be down the road in a few years, for sure.
1: Well, and it's also really exciting to look where you've come from, right? Like, oh, I've talked about this on quite a few podcasts recently. It's really dangerous to compare your insides to someone else's insta-outsides, and if you really want to know how you're doing, look backwards, see where you came from, see what you've conquered, see what you've gotten better and stronger at. So a five-year plan is great because it really lets you do that. So let's start at the beginning. How did you launch your own interior design firm?
3: Yeah, so I had taken some time off to be with kids. Um, I've got three young kids, um, but before that I had worked for five or six years at a high-end residential firm doing new construction and um, And I knew it was time to get back into things. And, um, of course, starting your own firm is something totally different from working for somebody else. (laughs) Um, So the first year that I wanted to get back into it, um, of course, the first thing is getting all your paperwork done, all your legal documents, and um, that is a whole job in itself. I knew that I wanted to do an LLC, so working hard to get all my paperwork filed and um, kind of the... General things like business cards and all those things that you have to have just to get started. But my main thing for the first year was networking. It was finding those sources, finding my tradespeople, finding um, some clients that were willing to take a chance on me <laughs> without any photographs <laughs> of prior work. Um, so I really just spoke to everybody I could about um, how excited I was to be back in the industry and getting started again.
1: What. Are some things you learned about networking? What turned out to be a successful way to meet new clients, and what was less successful?
3: Honestly, um, I got the most clients from just random places, like um, at the swimming pool with my kids. I um, would be talking to the other moms out there, and um, I ended up getting a few jobs from them. And <laughs> at church, <laughs> um, talking to people in Sunday school. It's it's so funny how little conversations that you don't think are very important, those are the ones that end up being those great connections with people.
1: Did you specifically say I'm a new interior design professional or I just launched my business or I'm looking for clients? Did you ask for work?
3: I didn't ask for work. I, I just um, was just genuinely so excited about getting started again and um, just telling them kind of, explaining what I could do and um, what I had done in the past. And they came to me. Yeah, it was kind of great. Everything just kind of lined up.
1: <laughs> That's amazing because people will say all the time, how do I network successfully? And I know at a certain point, it's it's okay to say to someone, well, I've launched my interior design business and i'm actually actively looking for new clients so if you know of anyone please send them my way like that would be a perfectly acceptable thing to say
3: yeah completely yeah
1: okay so so you uh, i just want to make sure everybody's getting all the points so the first thing you did is you set up your llc then you did some business cards any tips about business cards that you want to share with anybody right. Um,
3: I don't have one right here, but I'll tell you, um, I love Jukebox Print. I don't know if you're familiar with that online company or not, but um, that's who I went through, and they're just really fantastic. They have really nice, thick business cards, and they um, are really kind of forward-thinking company, and they allow you – I mean, you can make things out of wood if you want to with them. Like, they're just really creative and really open to all kinds of customization. I just used these, like, neat kind of recycled – Um, kind of craft paper-looking thick cards, and um, they're just a really great company to work with.
1: Nice. You started to say something about your LLC, so go back and say that for sure.
3: With your LLC um, filing all of that, you also have to get your tax ID, um, and then some cities require business licenses. But um, And that that actually was... um, I didn't start out with any legal counsel, and I wish that I had found a good contact from the beginning somebody that could really help guide me through that process because it it was frustrating and stressful trying to make sure I was doing everything correctly um, from the start so that's one thing I would highly recommend is go in and find somebody that can I mean pay them to help you get through that process because it's not you don't need to struggle through that process.
1: Good advice. Good advice for sure. So you got your legal backup documentation. You started networking and spreading the word to friends and family that you met in your day-to-day life. What other things did you have to do in year one?
3: Yeah. The other big thing was just finding sources, both for um, tradespeople and also for products. Um, And that was tricky because I had worked in another city before. And so I was in a whole new city this time and had no contacts and no resources. So trying to just be resourceful and figure out who was the best of the best. <laughs> and I think I, I may have gone about it in a, a um, kind of an offbeat kind of a way. But, um, I mean, I did things like drive around in the neighborhoods that I wanted to work in and see what vans were parked out aside of construction sites. <laughs> I, <love laughs> and I would it. take down phone numbers and call people. Um, <laughs> I figure the houses that I want to be working on, those are the people that I want to work with. So that was a good way to get started. Um, I, I would um, call up tile showrooms and ask for their like recommended tile installer list because a lot of showrooms have lists of people that they feel like are good installers um, and that they have relationships with. And so that was a good way to find um, different contractors um, through that route. Same thing with window treatments. I called, um, United Supply was who I called, and they had a list of installers. And so I kind of went down the list and interviewed three or four and um, met with them because it's important to walk into that first client meeting already having met your installer. (laughs) You don't want to look like an idiot, like this is your first time. So um, I, I made the effort to just reach out to people. And so that when I went into that first job, I didn't look like this was my first rodeo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great idea. So it seems to me that working uh, previously for another firm may have given you a bit of an edge in terms of knowing the kind of optics you wanted to create for your own clients.
3: Yeah, totally.
1: So year one, what about um, contracts? Did you tackle a contract in year one? And um, tell me about that.
3: Yeah, that's actually in my little notes here. That's actually next on my list. Um, yeah, the letter of agreement was was another really big thing to tackle. Um, luckily, I had some experience with a letter of agreement through the firm that I had worked with in the past. So I knew kind of the bullet points that I wanted to include. Um, it, but I'll tell you, that has evolved over the last few years. I, it started out as a basic kind of letter of agreement. Um, But every time I go through a new project and learn something new or figure out something else that I'm like, oh, I should have put that in the letter of agreement, I go back and revise and edit. But yeah, um, and now people are so lucky they have you to get that letter of agreement to get them started, to get that kind of base going so that they already are covered with a lot of things.
1: I built my letter of agreement the same way you did. Every time something went wrong, there was a new part to the letter of agreement. So it, for a while, resembled kind of a poorly constructed house where rooms got added willy-nilly, you know. (laughs) It it took some time (laughs) to get it to be a streamlined letter of agreement. But good for you. So this is all year one. Anything else come to mind when you think about that very first year being in business?
3: I said yes. (laughs) if somebody wanted to hire me I said yes I pretty much took um, all the jobs I could get and I go back and forth on that I mean I would love to be able to help someone to not do that because it is it is stressful and but at the same time I almost think going through that process of learning what I don't like has helped me to figure out the things that I do like in terms of relationships with clients and who I want to work with and what my ideal situation would be Um, and at the beginning you're just so eager and anxious to just get out there and get your feet wet Um, so having those jobs is great but you quickly realize oh my goodness I can't do that again or (laughs) you know or oh wow I really enjoy working with people where the husband and the wife are both working Um, you just learn as you go a little bit but I wish I could help teach people from the beginning <laughs> so they don't have to go through that. But maybe it's just a part of the process.
1: I think you are teaching people. I think there are listeners right now going, oh, man, that's me right now. And I am I better make that change quickly, because uh, Stephanie's telling me <laughs> to. So I think you are reaching people, for sure. So year one was really full. And it was very rich. And I'm sure it was rewarding in so many ways and then the calendar year rolls over, and now it's year two. Do you remember what happened for you in year two?
3: Yeah, so year two was really a big game changer for me. Um, I kind of see that my projects go in rounds. Um, You know, you work on several projects um, for a while, and then they kind of finish up and you're at the beginning stages of the next round of projects and um, really this year too was about um, my projects started to get bigger and the allowances started to get bigger. Um, I had at that point um, made contact with um, some really great builders that were reaching out to me to bring me in on projects Um, so Year two was really about having those higher budgets, higher allowances, um, bigger builders to be able to start defining my own design aesthetic as a designer and the style, stylistic direction that I wanted to go. Um, I had more freedom to, to do that in year two.
1: You probably started feeling a bit more confident because you had the first round of projects under your belt?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot more confidence. Um And with that confidence came my willingness to take risks. (laughs) You know, I um, that first year, um, I just wanted to make sure everything would go smoothly and just um, kind of played it safe. And then by year two, I realized, you know what? If I'm going to be the designer I want to be, it's time to take a little risks. It's time to... um, both stylistically and just saying yes to these projects that I was terrified to do, you know, these whole house projects. And um, I didn't have an assistant at that point. And how am I going to have the time and the resources to handle these bigger projects? But, um, you know, you realize if you're going to grow, you have to take a risk.
1: (laughs) Good for you. Absolutely. Most of us um, feel completely out of our depth at various points in our business timeline, right? And it's not linear. Like I've had, you know, I have, have challenging projects now. All these years later, I take on a project. And I'm like, what was I thinking? How am I possibly going to figure this <laughs> out? This is too hard. I should have said no. Uh, but those are the, that's how we grow, right? That's how we get better and stronger and grow.
3: Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's scary, but um, for the most part, you know, there, you've You know what you're doing and you've got the resources and if you've you know have done your you know research and you have your contacts you've got people that you can call to help if you do get it in mind and um, i think that's important i think you just have to go for it
1: yeah absolutely okay so year two seems like it was just kind of a growing block year you you built on what you did in year one And you gained some confidence and you kept going and you took some risks, which is really exciting. Tell us about year three.
3: Yeah. um, Actually, before we do, before we go into year three, can I say one more thing about year two that was a really big changing point for me? Yes. Um, That was that I stopped saying yes to everybody. I started saying yes to those bigger projects, but out of necessity, I had to start saying no. Um, Year one. I said yes to everybody, but by year two, I realized that I just couldn't keep that workload up anymore, and I didn't want to do those projects that were just um, either not profitable or um, just kind of sucking my time and my energy, and so it was really hard to start saying no, and th- that's when I found you, Kimberly. <laughs> you gave me that confidence to say no through your, I think you had, I'm, I'm not sure if it was in a podcast or in uh, one of your courses, but you um, you had talked a lot about that experience of saying how to say no to somebody and I took it and ran with it and it's great
1: (laughs) it's liberating right but it's also kind of hard I find even today saying no is really hard my natural inclination is to help you and um, it's a job I could do so I feel some obligation to do it so I find even today it's hard to say no right it takes courage
3: Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's an awful feeling because these people are kind. Um, you know, you generally, you really enjoy them as people. Um, but if the project just isn't right, you know, that you just, from a business perspective, you have to make that call. And it's, it's just an awful feeling. I had, um, one experience where I had gone in to do a consultation, and the husband and the wife just weren't on the same page. I could tell that the husband was kind of um, downplaying everything about the project and just being negative about, about the project and um, kind of criticizing a lot of things that his wife was saying. And um, ultimately, I ended up having to tell them I just couldn't do the project. And I was honest with them. I said it was it looked like they weren't on the same page. And that was so hard. And he got, he, he took it personally. Um, but you know, I, it's hard.
1: (laughs) You, I know how hard that is because I had to do that one time as well. That is a really scary situation to be in, but you're so wise because if it starts out like that, it ends much worse.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's an awful feeling in your stomach. (laughs) If I'm being honest, you know, you just, it's, yeah, it's hard, but you know, you know, in your heart that it's not, the right fit for you and you just have to listen to that
1: and not that it's our job to be counselors but in some measure I kind of hoped in the situation I was in that the couple might seek counseling when they heard that from an objective third party that you guys are you bicker and you criticize each other and you're not on the same page like maybe that becomes a catalyst to them making some kind of improvement in their marriage you kind of hope so right
3: yeah, yeah. We often do play psychologists.
1: <laughs> okay, so year two, super exciting. Learning to say no, which is powerful and liberating and scary. Tell us about year three.
3: Yeah, so um, that's where I am now. I'm um, kind of in year three here. And um, again, just really fine-tuning my style, starting, you know, I've been in this next round of projects. Um, And I'm really now I'm starting to build up kind of um, a base of projects that I've done that I feel like best um, display my personal aesthetic as a designer. So I'm starting to be able to really niche. um, And I think that is going to be something so important going forward. I know you always talk about kind of finding your niche and um, figuring out what that is and so I feel like I'm I'm getting there I'm not totally there but I'm getting a lot closer um so that's a big part of this year um and with that that comes being able to show other people my work and really being selective about the images that I'm putting out there whether it's on Instagram or on my website excuse me um hiring a photographer to photograph your work and then just being selective about the ones that you put up there. I I don't put all my work up there and I don't photograph all my work. Just the ones that I feel like are those projects that I would love to do again, that I would love to attract those type of clients.
1: Really strategic. I like that I'm hearing you being selective about what you're photographing. I would much rather go to someone's website and see three projects that are clearly what they're... excited and passionate about versus 50 projects where there's a lot there that's confusing. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, totally. And I do struggle with that because I've done many more projects than you see on my website. But um, I think in the end, it's ultimately going to be the right decision. And and it's expensive. It's expensive to photograph your work. (laughs) So, you know, just still being in, I, you know, I know I'm in year three, but I'm not this huge firm and I don't have endless budget to be able to do these things, but I know how important it is to get the best photographer you can, so just being really selective about those projects that you choose to photograph, um, it's important.
1: I couldn't agree more. How do you feel about hiring an assistant or getting a second set of hands in the office? Is that something that you're considering, or have you already done it?
3: Yeah, that's been kind of my big jump for for um, year three is that I made that leap to hire an assistant. (laughs) And um, it's, it's really great for so many reasons. But um, I was so nervous about it. Because when you hire somebody, you know, you're responsible, you know, they're relying on you for that income. And, you know, I was wondering, am I going to have enough money to be able to afford her? Um, So I've kind of taken baby steps. She works part time. So she works four days a week from nine to one. Um, and the thing is, um, I know we've talked a lot, or we've talked, you've talked, you've talked a lot about, um, you know, that, that assistant can be billed out at an hourly rate. And I, I definitely am hoping to get there, but I brought her in, in the middle of these projects that I've been working on. And that wasn't in my letter of agreement. And I feel strongly that I need to adhere. I can't. Veer from that letter of agreement. So right now, I'm not able to um, bill her her hourly rate out as much as I want to. But I'm hoping with this next round of projects, that'll go into my letter of agreement and and those hours will be fully billable, and that's going to be a huge improvement in my finances.
1: <laughs> so exciting. So a couple of thoughts there. I, I appreciate that it's not in your letter of agreement, but I'm assuming that you would bill that person out at a lower hourly rate. So you might actually be able to have a conversation with clients you're currently working with and tell them you found somebody who's good at the following tasks and you would like to assign those tasks to that person, thereby charging the clients a lower hourly rate for those particular tasks. So if it's a win for the clients... I could see a scenario where you bring it up to them and ask their permission to do that. On the other hand, if it's somebody who, if your systems aren't written down and she it takes her five times longer, I could also see a scenario where you decide not to bill for her. However, you, what you might also do is just add a little time to your billables for her. In, in other words, if she's doing tasks That's- that are directly contributing to the overall project then it's perfectly in line with your integrity to capture some of that time as your own hourly fees do you know what I mean
3: yeah that makes a lot of sense and I actually have done a little bit of of that um she does a lot of helping me expedite projects so um managing those orders and I think that is like the biggest thing that I've seen as as being really helpful is um helping streamline that like procurement process of orders and just staying on top of things so that um, we know where everything is at all times and something doesn't fall through the cracks. I'm seeing things move a lot faster because she's staying on top of it and I just couldn't get to things as as quickly. Um, so yeah so that's a great idea. i I'll take that advice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're under no obligation to do those things for free. So if let's say it takes her five hours and you think you might have been able to accomplish the same thing in two hours. I would definitely bill the client two hours of my time and then I would switch as quickly as possible to be more transparent and put those under someone else's uh, umbrella. But it's um, really exciting that you're even thinking about this. I think you're on a pretty fast track here, year three, and you're already you know, stepping up and hiring someone and thinking about how to increase that profit margin. So big things in the future for you.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Um, I also wanted to mention a big thing just for those that are listening that are maybe about where I am um, in their timeline. Um another big thing, um, for me has been raising my rates. Um, as we go through those rounds of projects, um, (laughs) you were the impetus for that. And, um, I have, it's kind of a funny story. Should I, can I tell the story about how, from the last high point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, go for (laughs) it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I had come to your business of design podcast that's live at the point at high point, I guess it was two markets ago. I'm not sure when it was, I think it might've been. Um, and, um, Ended up, you had asked me what my rate was on the podcast, and I was like, meekly, I said, 105? (laughs) And you kind of made a joke about it, and everybody laughed, and I left that podcast feeling like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? You know, it was, I was um, kind of embarrassed and upset about, you know, that my rate was apparently so low and um so spent that evening in the hotel just pacing back and forth just I just got so worked up about it but then it was just such an impetus to change that the next week I went back and that next client I raised my rate to 150 and um they still hired me and I'm still working and I'm making more money and so it's, it's great <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is so awesome. I remember that. It stands out because it was 105, which to me sounded kind of tentative, like <laughs> 105, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> so it's been, so now it's 150. And did anybody object? Did you lose clients? Did Was there any bad outcome from raising your rate from 105 to 150?
3: Well, I'll tell you, um, that first client that I raised my rates on was actually a client that I had a builder bring me into the project, um, to interview with them. Um, and looking back on it now, I should have kind of set his expectation before the meeting. Um, because when I went into the meeting and said my rates, I immediately, I got a phone call from him, not 10 minutes after I left that meeting saying, what you've raised your rates. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and of course, at that point, I was st- so nervous about it. And uh, but I held my ground. And um, yeah, so it was we ha- I had a conversation with him. But ultimately, um, you know, it's the client's money and it's their decision. But definitely, um Maybe if you work with builders, give them a heads up before you make that change.
1: <laughs> well, the builder's afraid that he won't get jobs because you price yourself out, right? But the truth is he's going to get better jobs because you're getting a client who's really going to invest in an amazing renovation project.
3: Yeah, it's so true. I'll tell you what I've done in year three, and that is I've hired an, a, a bookkeeper and um If there's something, you know, advice-wise, hire a bookkeeper right from the beginning. Don't wait. (laughs) Because um, just having a handle on your finance and just being able to really look at at things from a financial perspective, it really helps you make your decisions. So looking at those numbers and realizing, gosh, I have a lot of expenses. (laughs) It doesn't seem like it when you're working from home, but it adds up and you start to realize that your rate It's not just a random number like it's you need to charge more to be able to cover your expenses and make a comfortable profit.
1: Good advice. Get that bookkeeper in and start billing for the time the bookkeeper spends on client projects if you use your bookkeeper in that way, for sure. So you've so going back to the conversation, you raised your rate in year two to 150. Then that that's carried you through year three. Year four and year five are on the horizon. Tell us your big picture goals for year four and year five.
3: One of the big things that is constantly running through my mind is, do I want to get a studio? Do I want to rent a space or lease a space and grow bigger? Um, I feel like that would give me a little bit more um, legitimacy or something. I don't. I don't know how to describe it, but I just feel like having a space where clients can actually come into the space and we can have um, client meetings there and I can have furniture there, like to show them and to let them sit on. I think that would also help me. Here in Charlotte, we don't have a whole lot of showrooms. So I've often thought it would be fantastic to have a place where I could have like four or five of my favorite frames of furniture, um, maybe just in like a linen, like something neutral, just for clients to come in and sit and feel and we can talk about things. I think it would help that purchasing process.
1: Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I feel like we need a whole podcast to talk about, should I open my own studio? If I do, what is it like? You know, what's in it? Um, And to talk about that first thing you said, which is I feel like it will give me legitimacy. To me, that is a really telling comment because somewhere in Stephanie... (laughs) is the feeling lurking that you're not quite (laughs) legitimate, right? Which kind of is blowing my mind because as I hear you speak, you sound confident, you're moving on to bigger and better projects. You've got builders that you're working with now. You have a a vision for the future. Like a lot of people listening are saying, wait a minute, what? You don't feel legitimate? Like what's going (laughs) on there? And I'm telling you an office (laughs) space Might make you feel legitimate, but you don't need to wait for that. You could be legitimate today, and that's really important for you, I think, year three. Be legitimate whether or not you get that office space. But I think that's a really important thing for you to think about for year four and year five, for sure. What else is on the horizon year four, year five?
3: Yeah, bringing on more people. Um, And that's another reason to consider a studio space. Um, I need more people. (laughs) I've kind of realized that my business has two arms to it. I've got the construction side where I'm doing all the selections and specifications and things like that. And then I've got the procurement side that's like furniture and accessories and rugs and lighting and all of that. Um, And I really wish I had two people, one to kind of handle all the projects, the construction projects, keeping my notebooks updated and organized so that I can be out there at the meetings and bringing in new clients and then kind of come back to the studio and hand that information off and have somebody to expedite that. Um, And then same thing on the, the procurement, the furniture side. I feel like if I had two people, that would be great. And then (laughs) I mean, I'd love to have somebody else. I think it'd be great to have a a junior designer that's out there, you know, again, just doing some of those, like finishing up the projects and and doing those meetings once I've kind of gotten that big design solidified.
1: As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking there's absolutely no reason why all of this isn't going to happen for you by year four and year five. Like there's nothing standing in your way. You have everything (laughs) you need right now. I am super <laughs> excited to have you uh, as part of my peer community because uh, it, it reminds me of the important you know, chain of events that lead to, you know, where you are today. And that we're always, no matter how many years we've been in business, we're fine tuning our processes and we're changing uh, what we're focusing on. So um, thank you so much for, for being so generous with the community and sharing all of this. It's really important, everybody, to find people like Stephanie in your community of peers who are really focused on the business and not afraid to talk about things like profit margins and uh, contracts and all that kind of good stuff. Stephanie, we like to end every podcast with something called design intervention. And you've given us a lot of great information already, but something that you think is going to be really life-changing and immediately impactful to people listening.
3: The biggest thing is to start as you mean to go on. Don't wait to do all these things in terms of hiring an accountant, um, finding you know, a great team of people to be support for you. I think even if you're just a one person firm, you can still have all of those things. And it's so much better to get that good base before you get super busy. So that as you get busy, you've got that support system underneath you. I didn't quite take that route and I wish I would have.
1: (laughs) Such good advice. It's almost like, you know, you hear people say sometimes dress for the job you want. You're saying set yourself up for the career you want from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So good. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. I uh, look forward to speaking to you next time. And um, I really I'm excited to hear what's going to happen for you next. thanks so much Kimberly
3: it's been so fun talking to you you're such an inspiration so I'm really happy to be here with you today
2: (laughs) thank you for being a part of the business of design community if you love what you hear on the podcast take the next step by signing up at businessofdesign.com as our thank you you'll gain access to business of design's 15-step project management strategy A free introductory course which includes three business of design systems you can implement for immediate results. And when you're ready for success, a business of design membership, monthly or annual, will dramatically improve your business and your life. What are you waiting for? Together we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today.